For those of you who have been Christians for a while, uh, we've all kind of been in those moments where we've hit some roadblocks in our faith or where we've struggled or even began to walk away from our faith and go down a journey that maybe we didn't think we were going to go down. And as I began to think about that, the Lord reminded me of a story in Luke 24. This is an actual account. Luke, uh, being a physician, was very much about recording uh, the details and making sure that he had all the specifics. And right at the end of his book, in chapter 24, he tells an interesting story. This is after the capture, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. And he tells the story of two disciples, not the original 12, but two other disciples that were among uh, the many that Jesus had at that time, who were on their own journey and their own road uh, on a way to a town called Emmaus. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to be reading, first of all, verses 13 through 24, and then we're going to unpack a little bit of this. The Bible says, Now the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. I think this account from Cleopas is interesting uh, because it seems kind of counter to itself. On the one hand, he's, he's explaining everything that happened with Jesus. He clearly understands what had went down. This is not just a bystander, by the way. This is a disciple. So this was a follower of Jesus, someone who sat under his teaching. And Jesus was not shy about teaching what was going to happen, about being crucified and that whole shebang. He, he told them all what was going to happen. So he knew all these things. And then even if he was disappointed because of the crucifixion, he had heard that Jesus was resurrected. They had eyewitness accounts that came and told them. And then other men went and verified and saw that the body wasn't in the tomb. And yet the Bible tells us that they're sad. The Bible tells us that they're walking away from the centerpiece of where Jesus and all the commotion is at. And they're going to a different place. I think many of us have either walked down that same road or walking down that road or may one day walk down that road to Emmaus. You see, I believe the road to Emmaus is a path of lost hope. It's a path where we begin to lose our hope in various things. If you look at verse 21, Cleopas says, we had hoped that he was the one. They had hoped, meaning he had lost that hope. He no longer believed that Jesus was who he said he was. He no longer believed that Jesus could do what he said he can do. And because of that, he decided it's time to leave. That road to Emmaus is a road of lost hope in your future. It's a road of lost hope in the church. It's a road of lost hope in your faith. 
lost hope in your marriage, lost hope in your children, lost hope in God. It's a road that's defeated and it's sad and oftentimes it comes with company. These disciples of Jesus obviously knew all about him. They even knew about the resurrection, but because as he says at the end, they did not see Jesus, they lost hope. And now, even as they're walking with Jesus, they can't see him anymore. I think that happens oftentimes when we start going down that hopeless road, when we start walking towards Emmaus and we start throwing our hands up and we start giving up on God and we give up on the church and we give up on our family and we throw our hands in the air. And, and even though Jesus is still among us, we, we've gotten to a point where we seared our conscience so much, we don't even see him anymore. Some of you might describe it as, I just don't feel the presence of God anymore in my life. Now, again, I need you to understand, it doesn't mean the presence of God is no longer with you. It just means you've gotten to a place where you can no longer sense it. But notice, notice how Jesus responds because I love that Jesus doesn't leave us in our hopelessness. I love that Jesus didn't just say, you bunch of quitters, you losers, go to Emmaus. We don't need you, get out of here. No, Jesus, with all the things he has to do as he's just resurrected, makes it a point to go and catch up with two individuals. Not Peter and John, but two disciples, one of them nameless. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. Can I just pause there? It doesn't seem nice that he said that, but you know, sometimes when you're on the road to Emmaus, you need someone who loves you enough to tell you, you know what, you're just being dumb right now. You're just being foolish. You keep blaming people. You keep being angry at this. You're gonna, you, you, you can't get over it. You don't forgive your wife. You don't forgive your husband. You're not forgiving this. You, you, dude, you're just being dumb. At some point, look in the mirror. Like, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther, and they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 with those and assembled there together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke the bread. Something I notice about Jesus when we lose hope is he's still near us even though we feel like he's not is that he's willing to start all over, even from the beginning, even when we're not, and he's willing to meet us on the road before we get to Emmaus. Jesus is willing to catch up with you. Jesus is willing to get there halfway. Jesus is willing to, to start all over. Jesus is willing to, to walk with you on this road. He didn't stop him and say, guys, you're being dumb. Turn around, let's go talk back in Jerusalem. He says, you're obviously on a journey, a faith journey, and, and, and you're gonna make a decision one way or the other, but I'm gonna walk with you through this decision. I love that Jesus doesn't force them either. 
You see, it's oftentimes when you're not on the road, but you see someone else on the road, particularly if it's somebody you care about, you try desperately to rearrange them. You try desperately to redirect them. You try desperately to, to throw scriptures at them and, and, and cry for them and yell at them and tell them, come on, you know better. But listen, what I've discovered is people will not listen to you. They barely listen to Jesus. And sometimes it's wasted breath. Not all the time, don't get me wrong. Obviously, we, we try, we hope, but listen, it's important to understand that when someone is on the road to Emmaus, only Jesus can turn them around. Only Jesus can cause a U-turn. Your efforts are futile. Your efforts are, are, are gonna be helpless. And again, oftentimes we try in our own strength and we get frustrated with God when it didn't happen in our own strength. You can pray. That's not minimizing anything. That's the best thing you can do. You can pray and you can trust God because people might ignore your words, but they are helpless against your prayers. And so here we see that Jesus is not willing to give up. And so we have to look at this formula. How is it that Jesus gets these guys to pull a U-turn? And I, I believe it begins because Jesus starts to open some things up. And the first thing we notice is that he opened the scriptures. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Jesus opened the scriptures. The first thing Jesus did was he walked them through the Bible all over again. Beginning with Moses, he began to tell them all about what Moses, the prophets, the, the psalmist, he went through the whole Old Testament all up to the point where he was. He walked them through the scriptures. Remember, these were disciples. These were believers. These weren't unbelievers. These weren't people on the street who never heard about Jesus these were followers, but sometimes we need a refresher. Listen, oftentimes, if you've been on the road to Emmaus, you know it. We don't want to hear the scripture. We get annoyed when people send us Bible verses. We feel it's condescending. We feel it's, it's almost like you're on a high horse. And we, and we get to this point, we're like, I know what the Bible says. I've been in church. I grew up in church. I get what the Bible says. I don't want to hear that. But listen, often we can wander from the word of God. And Jesus reminds us, sometimes the only thing that'll cleanse you is the washing of the water of the word, is being bathed in the word again. Listen, Psalm 119 verse 105 reminds us that your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I remember when I was in Puerto Rico as a young man and my grandparents, they lived on the top of a mountain with no anything, like no electricity, no running power or whatever. And uh, I remember we would always try to get to their house before nighttime because I hated walking down that road at night because there was no street lamps. So we would walk down that road at night and I remember my cousin was telling me he was so terrified. He wasn't even a believer really at that time. He had kind of gone through some wild years. But when he's walking down that road and I guess what he was doing, he was singing all the old hymn songs. Jesus loves me, this I know. I am scared of Chupacabra. Like he was just like freaking out. And honestly, if you put a flashlight, all you saw were like a thousand frogs on the road, which freaked me out even more because I grew up thinking that frogs spit in your eyes and blinded you in Puerto Rico. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just how I was taught. So, so sometimes when we're walking down the road and we're wondering why it hurts so much, part of it is because you're walking in darkness when you're walking to Emmaus. And it's only the scripture that's gonna illuminate your path. It's only the scripture that's gonna be a light to your path, literally an illumination and telling you where you wanna go. 
<clears throat> oftentimes when people find themselves on the road to Emmaus, they say things like, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. I just don't know where I'm supposed to go. I, I don't know what the purpose is for my life. I don't, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. And, and it's, it's all written here. I tell the students respectfully, you got to be a special kind of dumb to fail an open book test. You know what I mean? Let's just be honest. Like, you got to be utterly lazy to fail an open book test in class. When the teacher's like, hey, open book test, all the answers are on page 107, and you still don't do it, you deserve the F. Just, just go to the down a grade. It's just not, it's not for you. And yet God has given us tests in life, but he gave us an open book. And he said, listen, yeah, I know this is hard. I know what you're going through is difficult. I know this is really testing your faith, but the answer's in the book. Oh, I, I just, I, I'm not really a reader. You cannot say that nowadays. I tell the kids all the time, if I just collected all of the messages, all the posts you read, if we put all that added up and wrote it in the book, y'all reading Russian novels weekly. You, you read. But are you reading the answer key? Listen, God, God, God made it an open book. And listen, I'll tell you, even for me, there are moments where I, even as a pastor, forget that. Where I allow things to start to get to me and, and I'm struggling and I'm praying and God's like, I have an answer for you. I sent it a few thousand years ago. Why don't you open up? <laughs> listen, 2 Peter verse, or chapter 1, verse 19 through 21 says, because of that experience, we have an even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. It always makes me laugh, too, because usually people who are on the road to Emmaus, they try to come up with all these reasons why not to trust the Bible anymore. And they'll say things like, well, you, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by man, to which I go, all books are written by men. Yeah. Every, everything you read was written by someone. <laughs> I'm not saying that, that God, you know, with a, a giant pen from heaven just started scribbling things in the sky and sent it. But we do know that it was inspired by the word of God. Well, how do we know that? Because the word of God was written over a span of 1,200 years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. And it's seamless. You put 40 people in a room and tell them to write about love, you'll get 75 different perspectives. But God, over a span of 1,200 years, had 40 different people with different languages and different cultures pen the word of God. Why? Because he was the author behind it. You can trust and have confidence in the word of God. It's the world's bestseller. No one has ever been able to destroy it. No one ever will. But listen, if you continue down that road without a lamp, don't be surprised when you crash. Don't be surprised when you're hurt. And I know it's hard. There's a pride aspect when you open that book, but there's also a desperation to say, God, I don't even know where to look, but I know I need to look to you. And listen, when you begin to search, the Holy Spirit begins to do something, okay? God began to walk through the scriptures, but their eyes had not yet been opened. And then he opened them. 
Now, if you're taking notes, it's important to understand not, first of all, he opened the scriptures, but second of all, he opened their eyes. Listen, you can read the Bible every single day for the rest of your life and never have anything transforming. There are plenty of professors who don't believe in God and know the Bible inside out. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the devil, the enemy himself, knows the scripture better than any of you and yet has no relationship with God. So it's not just about knowing the scriptures, it's about knowing the author of the scripture. See, Luke said that Jesus broke bread and their eyes were open. Now I'm not sure exactly why their eyes were open in that moment. These two were not at the Last Supper, so it's not like they had a memory trigger. The Bible says that only the 12 disciples were at the Last Supper, so that doesn't include Cleopas and whoever he was with. Maybe, maybe when he was breaking the bread, they just looked at his hands and, and saw the scars of the nails that were put in his hands as he was crucified. Maybe it was just the, the, the way he led and served them and loved them, and it just triggered this moment where they realized, aha. There's something interesting about awareness. You ever, you ever just have those things where, where you, one day maybe you're, you're in a familiar place and you go, when did that go there? And people were like, that's been there for 30 years. I've never noticed that. Never seen that in my life. It's like, and you almost feel like, nah, that's new. They just did that yesterday. Because you just never noticed it. In this moment, Jesus opens their eyes. I'm not sure what triggered it, but it did. The Bible isn't clear on specifically what opened their eyes, only that now they saw what was always in front of them. They recognized Jesus. Listen, when you read the scriptures, when you're on the journey to Emmaus and you're trying to turn around and, and you're looking to God's word, it's important that you ask the Lord, God, open my eyes that I may see. Listen, Psalm 119 says just like that. 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Reading God's word without God's power will provide information, but no transformation. You'll know facts but you won't know God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes so that it's not only information, but it results in transformation and it begins to do a work in you. Begins to move you, begins to, to turn your perspective. It begins to move the ship around, turn the car around, turn you around. You're no longer heading towards Emmaus because you start to see that's not where I wanna go anymore. Ephesians chapter one, verse 17 through 18 says it like this. I keep asking God, or I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. You know, I think part of the reason why we end up on the road to Emmaus it's because we don't understand the scriptures and we had our eyes closed when we read it. If you look back at the story, right? They, they, they knew all the information. They knew that Jesus was a prophet. They knew that he was a mighty man used and anointed by God. They knew that the Pharisees were behind his capture. They knew that he was crucified. They even knew about his resurrection. They had all the information, but they still couldn't see. They, they, they still couldn't understand. And, and, and there's a part of you that's like, well, well, well what's missing? And, and why weren't they able to see what, what God was trying to do? Because the, they didn't have their eyes open. 
You want to know where I see it? They said we had hoped that he was the one that was going to liberate Israel. They had unfair or wrong expectations of what God was supposed to do. Most of the times, or I would say a lot of the times, when we find ourselves on the road to Emmaus, it's because we're disappointed in a God who didn't meet expectations that he didn't set. They're expectations that you and I set. God, you were supposed to do this. God, you were supposed to be there. And God's looking at you going, I did what I was supposed to do. You may not like what I was supposed to do, but I did my part. And when we have unmet expectations, we blame God and walk away. God, you, you allow someone at church to hurt me, or, or, or God, you, you, you made my wife cheat on me. Nope. You were, you were supposed to restore that. I did what I was supposed to do. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. And at some point, you have to look in the mirror and understand, don't put expectations on me. I set my own expectations, says the Lord. It's his will. And again, we're like that kid. I used, man, I'm going to try to hold my tongue in case that kid's watching. But I hated that kid growing up who had the nice basketball, who none of us really liked, but he had the only ball in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? And he knew we only had him because of the ball, and we knew we only had him here because of the ball, but we needed the ball. And when you made him mad, what did he do? Took his ball and went home. And you're sitting there like, I don't even like you anyway. <laughs> but listen, we, we, we take the same mentality with God. Suddenly when God doesn't jump, when you tell him to jump and act how you tell him to act, I'm taking my ball, I'm going home. Honestly, can we just be transparent? God don't need you. God loves you. God desires you. God wants you. But don't be arrogant enough to believe that God needs us. He's God. <laughs> he can just wipe it all out and start over again. <laughs> I mean, he did it once. He could do it again. And yet, we, we, in our own arrogance, we, again, it, we're almost like children. I'm, I'm waiting for the day Josie pulls that stuff on me. I'm like gearing up. When she gets that little attitude and she's like, mine and wants to swing at me, I'm like, pop. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Totally to it. Hey, we don't have the live feed, right? On audio, I would never do that. <laughs> Try me. <laughs> we know that. And yet, we expect different from the Lord. The Lord is saying this, if you understood the word, you would have known, I was never here to liberate Israel. I was here to liberate the world. I was never here to establish Israel's kingdom. See, Israel believed that the Messiah was going to come, overthrow Rome, and set up an earthly kingdom in that region. And God's saying, you were thinking too small. I came to establish a heavenly kingdom to not just save one people group, but a world entire. Sometimes, again, we think narrowly. We think in our own perspective. We think you were supposed to do this for me. And I'm like, no, no, I came to save your whole family. This wasn't going to be just about you. This was going to be about the fifth generation after you. This is going to be about what I plan to do years down the line. You think it too narrowly, church. You're thinking too selfishly. But when you read the scriptures and God begins to open your eyes, then suddenly he begins to open your heart and mind as well. If you're taking notes, that's the third thing. God opened their scriptures, he opened their eyes, and then he opened their hearts and minds. In other words, he gave them understanding. The road to Emmaus is a road back to a time before Jesus. 
The road to Emmaus is a road to where your life was before you met the Lord. And, and it's, I think it's so interesting. The Bible's actually clear on it that the dog returns to its vomit, right? It's so amazing to me when somebody decides to go down that road, how quickly Emmaus becomes where they come from. They go back to the habit. They go back to the neighborhood. They go back to the love interest. They go back to, to their sin. They go back to whatever it is the Lord liberated them from. Israel when they wanted to go down the road, wanted to go back to Egypt. Peter, when he was disappointed at what happened during this time, went back to fishing. These two probably lived in Emmaus. They're probably from Emmaus, and now they're going back home. See, see, every time the Lord disappoints us, every time we're angry, every time we find ourselves on the road to Emmaus, that road leads to your past sins and probably more. The road to Emmaus is a road back to a time before Jesus. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 20 says, With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. I don't like necessarily saying the world is darker today than it's ever been because if you read the scriptures, you'll find that's not necessarily true. Ephesus was a horrible place. I mean, if you really study biblical history and you look back at it, we're not necessarily in darker times. It's just a new package. But I do look at the world nowadays, and, and I'm amazed at the lack of shame that the world has developed. And that lack of shame has been seeping into the church more and more. And, and we try to, to say, hey, listen, you could do whatever you want, and it's not fair for people to make you feel bad about that. And listen, I'm not here to shame you, but the Holy Spirit is here to convict you. And if what you're doing, if how you're acting is the life that you're leading, if it's contrary to the word of God, if it, if it brings shame to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict you on that. It will tell you. Now, again, we don't necessarily like to be told what we're doing is wrong. We don't like to be told that how we think, how we feel, how we believe is wrong. And yet the Holy Spirit is the one that says, I got something better for you. It's not a spirit of, of condemnation. We're not trying to guilt you into submission. It's a spirit of conviction that says, if you keep going down this road, you will lose me and I will lose you. It's a warning. It's like when you're driving down the road and you got those little divots on the side of the road, those little so that when you ever just drove and 10 minutes later, you're like, I don't know how I got here. You know what I'm talking about? Like your eyes were open, but you're like, whoa. You went on autopilot and you just ended up where you were supposed to be. And there's that part where you're like, thank you, Jesus. I have no idea how I got here. <laughs> and every now and then that might happen to you on the highway. And I love whatever genius created those divots because before all we had was the rail. You didn't want to wait for the rail. <laughs> if you got the rail, done. Like car, rail, car wins. <laughs> but somebody was wise enough to give a warning for the rail. See, the rail is the boundaries that we have in life. If you got to the boundaries, you already went too far. But the Holy Spirit is a <laughs> It's that noise that says, well, you're veering, Baba, you better wake up. You're starting, no. And yeah, it's so funny when we hit it too, we're like this. 
You know what I'm talking about? We straighten up real fast, like, oh. Right, I'm awake, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I got this. Just give me, I'm good, I got this. <laughs> and even there's a sudden fear. I can't believe I hit that. I can't believe I went that way. That fear is that conviction of saying, you better wake up. Because had you not had that Holy Spirit conviction, you would have went right over the edge. Listen, we got to learn to love the brrrs. We, we, we can't be salty and mad about it. We, we, can't, we can't get so upset that we sear our conscience. Listen, this is what the Gentiles did in this time. They seared their conscience. They, they, they had the road team cover that up because it was annoying to their ears. But God is saying, no, I put that in your life to stop you from going further. Notice Luke 24. Jesus was acting like he was going to continue on past Emmaus, right? I, I love Jesus. Jesus literally is like a parent to a toddler when he's walking with these guys. He's like, so what are you guys talking about? He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> oh, you didn't hear about it? Hear about what? <laughs> right? All right, I'm just going to keep on walking. Do you want to stay? Well, if you guys want me to stay. <laughs> but I love that he does that. They begged him to stay. And I believe Jesus was waiting for an invitation See, when you're on the road to Emmaus, he's not just going to knock you out of the car seat and start driving. You have to invite Jesus. You have to humble yourself enough to say, you know what, I'm a little sleepy. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Jesus, would, would you take the wheel? Jesus, would you take control? Jesus, would you stay with me just a little longer? We will never have our eyes, heart, and mind open if we're not humble enough to say, Jesus, can you just stay here a little bit longer, please? Worship team, if you can help me out. Like I said, I think every believer in this room has either been on the road to Emmaus, is on the road to Emmaus, or might one day very well be on that road to Emmaus. And that doesn't exclude leadership. I've, I've traveled down that path a time or two. And I remember one time in particular, I was young, I was immature, Again, ignorant to God's word, more hard-headed about what I wanted and how I wanted it. I was a teenager. And I was just at that point where I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. I was disappointed in God because he didn't do things the way I wanted him to do it in the time that I wanted him to do it. And I was with uh, one of my siblings at a um, really cheesy battle of the bands, like a Christian concert type of thing. I, I was not a fan of Christian concerts as a teenager because quite frankly, the music was bad. Like guys, you're so lucky with your music. We just, we just have bad, bad music. So I'm at this Christian concert and there was a, a celebrity judge. The old school Christians in the room might remember him. His name is Jeff Dale, Sonic Flood, kind of those bands. And he was a celebrity judge and, and it was really, really cold that day. Like it was one of those late fall days that was really cold. It was in the middle of, of cornfields in Woodstock, Illinois. Not a lot of people were there, just like the bands and their three friends that want to support them. And at the end of this Battle of the Bands, Jeff Dale was going to do a concert. So all the bands had finished playing and we, everybody was putting their stuff away. And I was just there to help, you know, putting stuff away. And honestly, I was, I was in a broken place. And uh, I remember he was getting ready to, to do his concert and nobody was in the audience. It was like a couple of people walking around, but nobody was actually like standing there paying attention to him. 
And as I was walking around, something inside me, I couldn't see it, but I knew now what it was, stopped me. And I just thought, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna check this out for a second. And he began to speak and he read a scripture. He opened the word. And I remember it was Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and I will put in you a new spirit. I will take away your old stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And Jeff Dio began to, to just comment on that and, and, and he began to open it up because it was the intro to his song. And, and as he's talking, the Holy Spirit's beginning to speak to me. And, and I remember as clear as day, the Holy Spirit telling me, how could you have a broken heart? How can you be upset and bitter and angry if supposedly you gave me your heart? Either I have your heart or you have the broken one. And I remember in that moment, I began to pray and say, God, I don't want this broken heart anymore. I want a new heart. I want a tender heart of flesh. I, I want to feel again. You see, for me, my, my coping mechanism was hardening myself, was, was just becoming angry, and, and that's just tiring. I said, God, give me a new heart. Give me a tender heart of flesh. And I love the fact that in that moment, the Lord did. Funny, a couple months ago, I was in Minnesota, and Jeff Dale is a professor there of music. And I tried for the last few days to, to, to meet him. And finally, I met him outside on the sidewalk, freezing, it was winter. And I just said, man, I just wanna tell you my story real quick. It could have been really easy for you not to play for an audience of one. But you sang your song, you, you, you were led by the Spirit, and I want you to know that you helped me to turn away from my Emmaus and go back to where God was calling me to be. Back on a journey that led me into ministry, that led me to do some of the great things that God has allowed me to do by his grace and mercy. You know, if you look back at the story in the beginning of Luke 24, the Bible says that they went to Emmaus and Emmaus was about seven miles away. Now, it's interesting because uh, biblical archeologists can't find an Emmaus seven miles away. There's one that's 13 miles away, and they're like, no, they couldn't. The Bible says that they went there and they came back. They couldn't have done that journey on foot in a single day. There's a second Emmaus, though. And this second Emmaus isn't seven miles away. It's three and a half miles away. See, I believe it's because those two disciples thought they were on a one-way trip. And God knew I got you a round-trip ticket. Yeah, you're going to go to Emmaus, but I'm bringing you back. You didn't know that, but I already planned it.